June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is off. I'm John Dickerson. We find ourselves once again sorting and explaining the challenges to the American system following the actions of former President Donald Trump, for which there is no previous example in American history. Last week's news. For the first time in history, a former U.S. president has been charged with multiple, 37 in this case, federal charges stemming from the investigation into his removal of classified material from the White House and his attempts to hide it from authorities. This is the second time Mr. Trump has been indicted this year. These federal criminal charges are part of a two-pronged investigation being conducted by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith who is also looking into Mr. Trump's role in the events leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Smith was named to oversee the investigation following the FBI's seizure of classified documents from Mar-a-Lago in August of 2022. The 49-page indictment outlining the evidence against Mr. Trump is exhaustive in its detail. Prosecutors accuse Mr. Trump of conspiracy to obstruct justice, making false statements, and allege his willful retention of hundreds of classified documents, including some that contain top-secret military plans and information about U.S. nuclear capability and vulnerability. The indictment leaves little to the imagination. It uses photographs of boxes of materials, including the classified documents, stored carelessly in open locations at Mar-a-Lago, including a public ballroom, 
a bathroom and spilled over a storage room floor. It cites detailed notes by Trump's attorney, audio tapes of the former president showing classified materials in two instances to people without security clearance, noting that, quote, as president, I could have declassified, but now I can't, undermining the former president's public defense that anything he took was automatically declassified. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States and they must be enforced. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Flashback to the 2016 campaign, when Mr. Trump highlighted the investigation into the misuse of Hillary Clinton's non-secure email server to forward classified emails. Back then, he repeatedly pledged to enforce all laws protecting classified information. We can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. Most of Mr. Trump's 2024 rivals and supporters in Congress did not address the substance of the indictment, but complained that it existed at all, declaring it an example of government abuse. You can't have one faction of society weaponizing the power of the state against factions that it doesn't like, and that's what we've seen. A few contenders say the actions of Mr. Trump show he should not be president. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who announced his campaign this week, says, wait and see. We also need to hear the former president's defense. Then each of us can make our own judgment on whether this is the latest example of uh, a Justice Department working in injustice or otherwise. For Mr. Trump's MAGA faction, there is no otherwise. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me, and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. On the campaign trail Saturday, former President Trump tried to turn his personal woes into a campaign message. I put everything on the line. I will never yield. I will never be deterred. I will never stop fighting for you. Never. There are a lot of questions we're going to try to answer today, and we want to explore how these aren't just documents in a criminal proceeding. They are also a window into the behavior of a candidate, a man who would like to be given responsibility with the most sensitive things a president handles again. We begin with our chief election campaign correspondent, Robert Costa. Bob, you've been reporting inside the Trump team, the legal team, but also getting reaction on the former president's response to all of this. What are you hearing? John, good to be with you. Last night, as the former president was traveling around the country, his aides and allies say he was defiant privately, furious about this indictment and pledging to stay in the race, even if he is convicted of a federal crime. Some of his allies describe privately his behavior and his conduct yesterday as someone somewhat akin to what happened in October 2016 with the Access Hollywood tape, and that dropped, and it created a major political crisis. What did he say then? I'll never quit the race. That's what he's saying this weekend. But Trump faces so much uncertainty, both politically and legally. His own legal team 
continues to have this unfolding shakeup. Two lawyers left the team in recent days, and now some of his remaining lawyers are trying to get it all together, but they're trying to still come up with a strategy. How are they going to counter this sweeping indictment? Bob, there's something, one of the most striking parts of the indictment is a transcript of a conversation the former president had with some authors who were in front of him. And in that conversation, he mentions Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, which immediately reminded me of, of the reporting you did for your book, Peril. What do you make of the former president bringing up the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? In recent days, John, we've been casting our net widely, trying to figure out why did this all happen? Why did the former president bring these documents back to Mar-a-Lago? What was the motivation? And part of our answer in our reporting is that he was angry. So much of this, as with many Trump stories, is driven by grievance. His grievance with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the recent one, Mark Milley, and how Mark Milley in the public eye was becoming a major figure in 2021. And to counter Milley's growing public profile, Trump in interviews with reporters and friends, he started to bring out documents to make his own case on national security, on foreign policy, to say that he was in a sense better than Milley, that Milley didn't know what he was doing. And and when he did this, according to our sources, he was cavalier, bringing out things he should not have shown to people writing books and writing articles. We mentioned the fact that this is happening in the campaign context. People sometimes call the campaign a job interview. This is a, this is a candidate who's had the job before, and this is a way he treated it. What's the, been the response, uh, treated the obligations of the job? What are the, what's been the response inside the Republican race to this indictment? There is alarm in the sense that they believe if he wins the presidency again, he is so now comfortable with the levers of power and he ignores the rule of law in the eyes of some of his competitors that he could be a threat to American democracy. Yet very few are saying that publicly because they know Trump voters across the country who they want to win over are still standing with Trump as he faces this legal showdown. But former Vice President Mike Pence, who recently jumped into the the race, has said that Trump, in his view, doesn't follow the Constitution, doesn't understand the rule of law. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is making a similar case against Trump. So there's a bit of a growing refrain. But so many of the rival campaigns at this point are in a wait and see mode. They know that on the horizon is not only a trial with this federal special counsel indictment, but also another possible federal indictment on the ongoing January 6th case. And in August, you could have an indictment in Georgia over Trump's pressuring of election officials and, of course, the ongoing trial and litigation that looms on the horizon in New York. CBS News chief campaign and elections correspondent Robert Costa. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. For more on the legal implications, we're joined by senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge and CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman. Ricky, I want to start with you. You've been a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. So what stands out to you now that you've read this indictment? I think what stands out, obviously, is the magnitude of detail in this indictment. It's not only that you're dealing with 31 counts under the Espionage Act, which simply means the unlawful, willing retention of classified information or even unclassified information that would hurt the defense of the United States and aid our enemies. It's the detail of a speaking indictment. We have to remember that much of this indictment, John, 
is to educate not only ultimately a court and jury, but it's really to educate the public. Much of this indictment, in terms of the detail, may not even come into evidence in terms of what's admissible or not in the course of a trial. What also strikes me, John, is the overwhelming detail leaves the Trump legal team with real need to have powerful motions to dismiss. Because if this goes to trial, the way it reads, it's rather overwhelming for anyone to be able to fight it on the facts themselves. And I want to get to that motion to dismiss question in a moment. But Catherine, you've been doing reporting about the risk assessment, about just what was in these documents. Educate us on that. Well, what jumps out to me, John, is when you go to the section on the willful retention of national defense information. By my count, there are 21 top secret documents. And the disclosure of top secret information has the expectation of exceptionally grave damage to national security. But what else stands out to me is some of the classified codings like TK or talent keyhole. You don't see that very often. That's about intelligence from overhead imagery. For example, if we're looking at a terrorist target, do we have such good visibility that we can count the hairs on their head? Can we see what they're eating for breakfast on their terrorist patio? Those are capabilities that we don't want our adversaries to know that we have. Then also special access programs or SAP. These are highly restricted programs because of the sensitivity of the intelligence and the technology, such as stealth technology, for example. Think of classified information like the Pentagon. Special access programs are these handful of rooms where there's just a limited number of keys to control and restrict access to that information. So it's not just secret, it's the top of the top of the top. Some of these are way beyond um, top secret. Like I said, talent keyhole, when you're talking about special access programs or SCI, sensitive compartmentalized information, these really are the crown jewels of the U.S. intelligence community. Ricky, let me ask you about a part of this indictment, which seems to, which comes from one of the former president's lawyers. Educate us on uh, the crime fraud exception, how it's possible for a prosecutor to have this information. And is that a a weakness because we know from our reporting that this is something that the Trump defense team is going to talk about is the behavior of the prosecutors. We all believe that when you go to a doctor that there's a privilege that what you say and what your ailments are will remain confidential. Same thing if you go to a clergy person. And it's exactly the same thing when you go to a lawyer. You believe that if you are a client that what you say will never be disclosed to anyone, let alone in a grand jury or a court of law. It's called the attorney-client privilege. It protects all conversations relating to legal advice. So how did it get broken? That is, how did a court in Washington, D.C., a judge, and then an appellate court affirm the idea that you could hear, listen, read the notes and the voice memos of a lawyer to testify against his own client. It's called the crime fraud exception. So what the court believed was the conversations between Evan Corcoran, the lawyer, and Donald Trump were really in furtherance of a crime or a fraud. And he was ordered and forced to testify. Now, one could say, well, that's one and done. 
So now Mr. Corcoran is going to be a witness in this case should it go to trial. But we have to remember that that took place, that decision, in the District of Columbia. Now we are in Florida. So can it come up to a new judge? Or might a new judge mm -hmm. decide that it is not admissible at trial? Yes. Will that hurt the case? Not necessarily. There's plenty of other evidence. Catherine, I've got two questions for you. The first is, what happens if you're just a regular old Joe and you have this kind of information? Legally, what happens to you? What's happening? Well, as one example, I have contacts who work in the nuclear weapons capability arena. Let's say you have a nuclear document. It's on top of a photocopier. You walk away. You leave it there. Your clearance is gone. You are out the door. There are immediate consequences. Let me ask you about a number of the president's defenders. Well, first of all, we should note the current president is under investigation by Correct. a special counsel. We don't know much about that. But Republicans have brought that up in defending the president. They've also brought up the case of Hillary Clinton. You've been looking at that. Give us a sense of the apples and oranges or apples and apples in comparison with what's on the table. Well, here. what strikes me, John, in this indictment is I think the special counsel, Jack Smith, specifically charged willful retention of national defense information in an effort to sort of blunt criticism that these cases may be the same. If you go back to the summer of 2016, then FBI Director James Comey said that they found multiple email chains on Hillary Clinton's private server that she used for government business that contained highly classified information, in, including these special access programs that we just discussed. But in his view, it should not be charged because he didn't feel there was sufficient evidence of intent or willfulness. Critics would say that even just purchasing the server was an example of intent. And then finally, you have to look at just the scope of the information and also the timeline. But I think this charging of willful retention really is by design. Right. The facts of the case, quite different. But uh, thank you so much for that and for all your other answers. And Ricky Kleeman, thank you. And Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto and his team were in the field with a presidential survey when the indictment news broke and were able to include questions to determine the impact of the charges against former President Trump. Anthony, it's good to have you here. What's the reaction been? Morning, John. Start with Republican primary voters, because we're in the heat of this campaign. They say it does not matter. They expressly say that this will not change their views. And maybe that doesn't surprise. They've been with Donald Trump for years. But what's interesting is the why. When you ask if they're more concerned that this is politically motivated, or if there's a national security risk, they come down heavily on the politically motivated side. That's 76 percent of them saying that. And, you know, what's interesting about this is you juxtapose that against the broader public, who is much more split. And in many cases, the public says it, these aren't mutually exclusive. It can be in part both. But the Republican primary voter, Donald Trump, is still on top. And this hasn't changed anything. And the, the, the general election voter, so the Republican Party primary voter overwhelmingly, but when you mix it all together, the majority believes what of the country? So if you take out just the potential national security risk and right. you ask people, is this one? Well, you get this big number among the public that says, yes, it is. Yes, it is a national yes, security risk. Yes, it is a risk. national security risk, if true. If, in fact, as alleged, right. there were nuclear plans or military plans in these documents. That's at 69%. But you want to see that in comparison to 
the Republican primary voter for whom that number is much lower. It's at 38 percent. So it's that difference that I think is essential to understanding why you're going to see the rhetoric on the Republican side on the campaign trail that's talking about what they say is political motivation as opposed to national security risk. So what happens if the president is actually convicted? So if you look ahead to that possibility, we ask, would that be disqualifying for him to be able to serve a second term if elected for what? Um, Republican primary voters overwhelmingly say, no, that's not disqualifying. He ought to still be able to serve. And they're at eight and 10 on that. But the public is majority saying he cannot. So look, you get through the primaries and you wonder about general election implications here. That difference is going to matter. But for now, for Republicans, it is not disqualifying. And finally, a question of history. We all remember the lock her up chance from the 2016 campaign from Donald Trump's supporters at rallies. What did the survey show then about the way Republican primary voters thought about the allegations that Hillary Clinton had misused uh, classified data? Well, back in the summer of 2016, our polling showed that Republicans overwhelmingly thought that what they thought she did was wrong and was even illegal. Okay. Now, look, that may have ultimately had electoral implications for her as well. But I think the takeaway from that comparison is that sometimes when the public makes up its mind, it's often politics first. It's who is doing something as opposed to the abstract of what may have happened. And Anthony, we'll have more discussion about politics later in our broadcast with our political panel, where we'll talk about the state of the race. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Thanks to ADT, our presenting sponsor. I enjoy true crime podcasts as much as the next person, but I think we've all experienced losing sleep when an episode hits just a little too close to home. With ADT, get 24-7 peace of mind knowing that your home is protected by the most trusted name in home security. With nearly 150 years of experience, reliability, and safety innovations, ADT is a tried-and-true smart home security system that over 6 million Americans trust. Equipped with the latest technology and the intelligence of Google, ADT provides comprehensive protection that you can manage from virtually anywhere. Whether you opt for professional installation by ADT Pros or easily set it up yourself, customize your smart security system to work for your home and your routine. With Nest cams and doorbells, set up intelligent alerts so you receive notifications on what matters most. Your camera can tell the difference between a person, package, vehicle, and animal, and will alert you when there's activity. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, and Nest Doorbell are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT. Brilliantly safe. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We turn now to the first of two Republican governors joining us today, New Hampshire's Chris Sununu, who announced last week that he would not be a candidate for president 
Welcome, Governor. Thank you for being with us. You've taken a look at the indictment. Um, do you think that the current frontrunner of the Republican nomination should be given the responsibility to handle the most sensitive national security documents again with re-election? Well, I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if half of what they say they can prove is provable, then he, he's got a real problem on our hands, and it's self-inflicted. Uh, let, let's remember that. This is a, a, he had every chance in the world to hand all those files and documents back. He did just the opposite. He bragged about keeping them. So this is very self-inflicted. I mean, I guess we'll find out of the 37 or whatever charges there are, how many he's potentially found guilty on. So we'll, we'll see where it goes and what's disqualifying and not. Uh, but I think, you know, that last segment you had was, was really telling. Um, it's just another example that he could win the nomination, but cannot, mathematically cannot win in November of 24, which is why the Republican Party uh, needs to look to another candidate. And they've got a lot of great options before. This seems to provide an opportunity for them to not look to another candidate because they are rallying around him. I want to read you something um, from the National Review, uh, which wrote about this indictment. It is impossible to read the indictment against Trump in the Mar-a-Lago document case and not be appalled by it. The way he handled classified documents as an ex-president and responded to the attempt by federal authorities to reclaim them. You seem to share that view, but many, the majority in your party and the majority of public officials, have exactly the opposite view. Yeah, so this is the problem that the Department of Justice has. And, and whether you want to agree with it or not doesn't matter. The reality is a lot of people are looking at that kind of cloud that sits over the DOJ and says there has been a little too much politics in that department uh, over the past couple of years. There's been a lot of allegations of, of political handling. So they have the responsibility to say, look, this is different. This is much more severe. But, and I think they have to do that. What Let me ask you this, Governor. But... Um First of all, the Department of Justice is investigating the sitting president. There's a special counsel. So the same, same standard is applied to him. And isn't, isn't it not the Department of Justice that's applying a different standard, but the politicians who are the same ones in some cases, Kevin McCarthy and others, who are applying a, a standard to Donald Trump that they did not apply to others? Uh, most, you know, Hillary Clinton yeah, well, being the primary one. Yeah, but you can't equivocate. Yeah, if I may, you can't equivocate the two, right? You so you have equate. folks on, on, on the, you know, the, on the, yeah, equate the two, sorry. But look, those are politicians. They're, they're on the Republican side. For the most part, they're going to defend a, a, a political position. The DOJ has a responsibility to be above it all and should be and historically has been, but recently has not been. And so the average American watches this. You and I are in the weeds, right? We're talking about this issue all the time in the, over the last 48 hours. The average American is looking at this thing for 90 seconds. And they're saying, wait a minute, they found files over there. They found a server in Clinton's bathtub over there. They but, found files over here. But, What's the difference? And there is a very clear di difference. There's right. a huge difference. I'm, but it has to be explained to the American people. But I mean, that, Governor, that's like saying New York and New Hampshire are the same because they have the word new in their titles. I mean, there are great differences in terms of obstruction of justice in the, in the cases of, say, President Biden and the case of President Trump, yes. former President Trump. Um, so let I me agree. ask you, but uh, we're going to run out of time, unfortunately. So I, hold on. We're going to get you on the other side of the, the half hour and we'll come back to this. We're going to take a break. Stay right there. We've got more when we come back to Face the Nation. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We return now to the Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Nunu. Governor, we were talking about the uniform application of standards, whether it's by politicians or the Department of Justice. The former Attorney General Bill Barr weighed in on this question on Fox News when he was asked about whether this is politically motivated. He said, I defended the president on Russiagate. I stood up and called out Alvin Bragg, that's the Manhattan District Attorney, politicizing the hit job, and I have spoken out for 30 years about the abuse of criminal justice process to influence politics. But this is simply not true. So you have the former attorney general saying that these charges of weaponization are not true. I wonder what you think a responsible politician looking at the evidence before us should say about the Department of Justice and whether there's any danger in saying weaponization when you have a former attorney general saying, no, this is on the level. No, I think that's a great point. I think Bill Barr is absolutely right. I, I don't see this as being political, but you. But again, the point I keep going back to is um, the the average person may may still think it's political, and a lot of people clearly do. And so, if you're going to take unprecedented steps like this, as valid as they are, as valid as they are, then they have to again acknowledge the responsibility of showing all sides of it, showing how it's not political, not just saying "Don't worry, it's not political." They've done that before, and it, it didn't work out so well. So they have the responsibility of showing how it isn't political to give that calm, to give that confidence and that trust in the system. So when this goes forward and if and when he is found guilty, there's trust that it was done the right way. As a politician of good faith, what is one's responsibility when surveying this, when you, uh, when you know it's not a weapon, is it, when you know there's no evidence of weaponization, what should you say to the public? The public may feel one thing, but if the facts of the case suggest more complexity and gray areas, what does a politician of good faith say to the public? Yeah, well, look, I, I'm, I'm a big believer. Everyone has to be very straightforward and transparent about it and acknowledge uh, the realities of the severity of these accusations and, and these allegations and the fact that they, again, they're very real, they're self-inflicted, this is nothing like we've ever, anything we've seen before, um, and, and there's very likely, I think, going to come down to some type of guilty um, uh, verdict on, on the president, at least on some of these charges. And so, again, we all have that responsibility. Now, who takes that? Who wants to play political games? That's, I, I guess, everyone, unfortunately, you know, will, will tend to do that on both sides of the aisle, by the way. Let you just have to acknowledge both sides of this. You really do. Uh, let me move on to the state of New Hampshire, the first primary. Uh, does this, you want to change uh, the conversation away from Donald Trump and to get some other candidates and perhaps get another nominee. Does this focus in the rallying around the former President Trump uh, make that more difficult? It makes it more difficult. But look, my, my message to all the candidates is very clear. 
you better come out, just as you, you acknowledge. You have to come out, and, and they have to come out and acknowledge this is different, this is serious. If, if even half of this stuff is true, um, he's in real trouble, and it is self-inflicted. And I just see too many of the candidates trying to walk around it. We'll see what happens. To your point, you have to be clear and transparent. You're running against this guy. He's whooping you by 40 points. Everybody needs to come out in concert. So it's not just a Chris Christie hitting Donald Trump or this candidate hitting Donald Trump. It is a party message. That's very, very important because Donald Trump doesn't represent the Republican Party. He doesn't. Rep he only represents himself. And so that that is shown when all the candidates come out equally and unequivocally talking about this issue in the right way. Did you mention that to uh, Governor Burgum when you had breakfast with him this morning? Absolutely. D look, Doug is an incredible governor. I think he's going to be a great candidate. He's hitting the ground running with uh, with all the things that you need to, to be successful. And, and a lot of the other candidates are, are kind of turning their machines on and, and starting to hit the ground. So we'll see where it all goes. But I think Doug's a, a great governor and he's going to he's going to kind of be a spark to watch this fall. Another person you met with this week got into the race, former Vice President Mike Pence. Here's the thing that puzzles me. He is by every measure of the old style of politics, a good old fashioned conservative. And yet the polling consistently shows that he, though, though uh, protesters at the, or, or the, the, those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th called for his hanging, he seems to have paid a political price for that, more than the person who led to the circumstances that had them call for his hanging, which is to say his former boss. What does that say about the nature of things? Well, look, all, all the candidates are a little bit different, but I think you have three candidates in a similar position, all great people, great candidates, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, former Vice President Pence. These are all folks that were on the Trump team, right? And now they're kind of off the team and, and they're all running against him. So they each just have to make their cases. They know how to run a ground game. They know how to talk to folks with uh, a sense of uh, authenticity about what it is and what has changed between then and now. But each of those candidates are in, I think, a similar position will have to make their case as to why um, they, they not just have earned the job, but what's going to spark them? What's going to spark them beyond five, six, seven percent in the polls to get people excited this fall? All right, Governor Chris Nunu, thank you so much for being here. We'll be talking to you again for sure. Appreciate it. Three more Republicans jumped into the presidential primary race last week. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum was one of them. He is campaigning in New Hampshire and joins us from Manchester. Good morning, Governor. Thank you for being with us. Um, you're trying to break through. Uh, all candidates running with, against Donald Trump are this indictment, whatever you may think about the, uh, about the details of it, creates an opportunity to talk about the responsibilities, obligations, and character of the job. So is it an opportunity for you? And what are you going to do with it? Well, John, you've, you've written and written eloquently about the, the presidency being the hardest job in the world. And I think uh, part, of, part of your thesis was uh, priorities. And, and this is uh, something that we've been talking about. We're on day four on the campaign trail. I'm talking about that and, the, and it sort of make sure that people understand, you know, who we are, why we're running and what we'll do and, you know, who we are. I'm a small town kid from in North Dakota. Uh, I've had jobs growing up where you shower at the end of the day, not at the beginning of the day. Uh, went from those small town roots. My dad died when I was a freshman in high school. I got a little bit of farmland, mortgaged that. That became the seed capital for a startup software company, which grew into a billion dollar company uh, with small town kids from all over North Dakota working for that company. And we had you know, 130,000 customers in 120 companies. It's like one of these only in America type stories. 
And the reason why we're running is we know that now having been governor the last six and a half years, I know when you're in the top spot in an executive role, how you pick your priorities, what you focus on, you have an opportunity to improve the life of every citizen. And that's what we're planning on doing is improving the life of every American and bringing out uh, the best of America. And how we're going to do that is we're going to focus on three things. The economy, it's touching everybody right now. Energy policy, that touches everybody right now and completely related to national security. Uh, those three things are interrelated. And right now we feel it's not just a course correction, but the Biden administration is 180 degrees in the wrong direction mm -hmm. on the economy, on energy policy, right. and on national security. And uh, that's what we're going to focus on and talk about in our campaign. And that's when you wake up every day as a chief executive who's been handed the responsibility by the people of North Dakota, you have a certain uh, obligation to the office you feel you've talked about it. Would you do anything like what's alleged in this indictment about former President Trump? Well, I've uh, only made one campaign promise so far, and that's if, if elected, I will get down to the, to the southern border in the first two weeks, not take two years like Biden did. And I can also tell you that uh, when president and when we leave the office, that we will follow every rule related to handling classified documents. Governor uh, Sununu was just on. He said he had a good breakfast with you, but he said this is a competition. There's only one top spot. You're you're in the business world. You can't just get a little bit of market share. You have to get the entire you have to get the most and biggest share. And his argument is that candidates like you have to make a clear distinction with the front runner. And this is a pretty big opportunity, particularly for somebody talking about the values they were imbued with by living in a small town to make a moral claim about the office and the attributes required for it, but you're not. Well, I think obviously uh, the way we've conducted ourselves when I was a CEO, when I've been governor, uh, when you have the responsibility, the top spot, it's important to make sure that you're that you're not only doing a great job for the people you're serving, but when you're you're the office holder for a period of time and there's you know, a dignity and a discipline that goes with being a governor and goes with being the president. And certainly we would we would strive uh, to uphold that going forward because it's a it's, it's such a key institution uh, going forward. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what we, we'd be focusing on, making sure we're doing that. And like I said, you've written about the importance of that. Let me ask you about a moment um, from uh, you. Well, you've, you, you had the, uh, an interview with the Fargo, Fargo Forum in which you said uh, that there is a silent majority that's being neglected. Qu quoting you, all the engagement right now is occurring on the edge. What did you mean? Well, I think it's not just silent. I, uh, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah doesn't call it the silent majority. It's the exhausted majority. But, uh, you know, the majority of Americans and the people that are touched every day by these issues of inflation, of, of government red tape, of high gas prices, uh, of an open border, it's affecting every American. They're not on social media. They're not watching the cable news programs. That's the majority of Americans. And so I think, again, in the tech world, we always said, hey, when you're building a, a, a global world-class company from nothing, you've got to separate what's signal and what's noise. And there's a lot of noise, and a lot of that noise is in the echo chambers on the edges, and that, that exhausted majority in the middle, uh, they're yearning for leadership that's going to come and talk to them and listen to them about the issues that are affecting them uh, in their everyday lives. And, and, and just in the few short days we've been on the trail, uh, we know that. In the two days in Iowa, yesterday here in New Hampshire, uh, there are people that want to talk about the issues facing this country and how it affects them in their lives every day. During the COVID uh, pandemic, the, in the toughest part of it, you talked about masks and you said that, that everybody needed to be empathetic towards those who might wear it. You said, dial up your empathy 
and your understanding. Are there other issues in the world you see today in domestic politics where you would apply that same guidance for people? Well, when we talk about the best of America growing up in a small town, the best of America is when neighbors help neighbors. When, when, when a farmer uh, in North Dakota falls ill, uh, the neighbors rally around, whether it's to get the crop planted or the crop harvested. You know, every spring in Western North Dakota in the Badlands, uh, when it's time for spring branding and Roundup, the neighbors show up. They couldn't get the work done if they weren't neighbors helping neighbors. And we need to get back to that. And I think part of what, you know, our, our real enemies, you know, when we talk about China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they love it when we're fighting with each other. They love it when we're just, you know, uh, throwing insults back and forth at each other. But we have to approach, and one of the bywords we have in our administration is curiosity. Curiosity to understand where the other person is coming from. And with that, it also, I know America has built its economy around innovation. And we have the Biden administration completely focused on regulating, you know, regulating our industries out of business as opposed to focusing on innovation. And the way you get to innovation is you get there through curiosity and understanding uh, that everybody can contribute to the conversation. All right, Governor Doug Burgum, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Good luck out on the campaign trail. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back with our Elections and Surveys Director, Anthony Salvanto, and we're also joined by Cook Political Report's Amy Walter, as well as our senior White House and political correspondent, Ed O'Keefe. It's good to be with all of you. Anthony, I'm going to start with you. More numbers. Um, Give us the top line number of the Republican field right now. So Donald Trump is still on top, comfortably, and in two important ways. One, very simply, in vote choice. He's at 61 percent when people say who they would support right now. But in another very important way, in consideration. That's when people can pick multiple candidates, one more if they like, because this is a point in the campaign where they're evaluating things more generally. And he's up in that consideration, too. So there's not a fancy, a special second candidate that's hiding in the wings according to consideration. But don't answer that, because I want to ask you, in terms of what the president, former president is talking about, is it what people want to hear? No. Short, in a short answer, um, they don't want to hear him talk about 2020. They don't want to hear him talk about himself or the past. They want to hear him talk about plans for the country. And yet... He's still leading. Yep. Amy, uh, what do you make of that in this current context where there's the first indictment of a former press, federal right. indictment? I think there press. are two things. One is if the leadership of the party and his own rivals are echoing what Trump is saying about this indictment. This is politically motivated. This is rigged. This is a witch hunt. Mm -hmm. Why should we believe that voters are going to feel any differently? So they're 
they're kind of all following each other in this. And the other one about why are they not talking about the number one issue? Um, if you talk to the folks in and around, say, the DeSantis campaign, they believe the only way to go and chip away at Trump support is to go at him from the right on some of these cultural issues. Yeah. That's where they see him as most vulnerable. And when you talk about the economy, voters overwhelmingly, I'm sure you've seen this in your polling already, Anthony, voters in the Republican primary think that Trump did a great job on the economy. So trying to out-economy him is going to be very difficult. And also, he may not have to talk about it much. They're like, yep, he's our guy. We've checked that box. We, he can talk about whatever he wants because right. we've we've assumed he's going to do a And this is where the job. governor that you just Bergen, interviewed yeah. is, Bergen is trying to make his case that, look, I'm actually the business guy. I've yeah. actually done this. I'm going to address those issues. Getting that traction, though, is going to be very difficult when... We still are focused much more on what's going on with Trump than yeah, anybody other can. I want to ask about that blocking, which we talked a little bit about with Governor Sununu. Ed, you've been out on the trail. There are some of former President Trump's rivals who are trying to make the moral case, who are trying to make. Um, how's that going for them? Not very well, as you can see in these numbers. I mean, 1%, right? For Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, probably too early to measure. Uh, what I was struck by is that the top five there in the consideration category. So it was Trump, DeSantis, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley. Those are the names I heard from voters, Oh yeah, the five of them. Um, and, and so that sort of gives you a sense that at this point, maybe that's the ball game, right? That Trump is obviously double digits ahead of all of them. But if anybody else right now in name ID staffing operations has a shot at Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, it's probably those five right now. I'm struck, too, by Governor Burgum's decision this week to come out and say, I'm going to talk about the economy, energy, and national security. In some ways, energy bleeds into the okay. other two. So maybe really he's just running for energy secretary one day. But he's made a point, and it's just been proven in the polling, I, that I, most voters want to be listening to candidates talk about inflation and the economy, which for more than a year, right, has been and, the number one concern. And yeah. when you get there, by the way, that's what's on your plate. Right. The stuff he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, first of all, it always feels good when the reporter on the ground is seeing the same yeah. things we're seeing in the polling. But but look, when you list out for folks what they want in a president in the abstract, right? And for Republicans, it's been someone who challenges woke ideas. It's also been someone who has economic plans or can make the economy better, etc. Whatever it is, Donald Trump is your guy. Mm -hmm. And and so you can sort of wrap that up. And they say, do they want someone like Donald Trump? They want someone similar to Donald Trump? They say yes. And he's running. You know, what's interesting. You, meant, you mentioned that, though, the 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 woke, uh, the attack on woke is an attack. We don't have a lot of candidates and the Tim Scott is the other one. But Governor Burgum is a hey, I, actually, I'm going to show you about where I came from and these American values in a small town with 400 people and building a, it's it's the old optimistic message that in the old days, you, every candidate had to have one. Right. Now it's That's basically right. Bergam and Scott. That's right. That they want, uh, Republican voters want somebody who's going to fight for them. Because if you do believe as a Republican voter that the system itself mm -hmm. is rigged, that that you, we, as are these voters, we are being um, basically oppressed by whoever you want it to put, to put in that category. Coastal elites, um, the folks who run the Justice Department, all of them are against us. We need somebody who's going to fight for us. The other thing, just going back to the economy, I heard this a lot from Republicans after the election. They looked at the data that's in 2022, that election. They looked at the data that said, number one issue is inflation, we're going to win. But you listen to the voters and what they said was, well, we never heard what your plan was, mm -hmm. right? We knew that yeah, we don't think Biden's doing a great job on inflation, but what are you going to do about it? And let me pick up on something Amy just said, which is interesting. So 
some people say, well, the Republicans have, have rallied around Donald Trump. He's under threat. But what if the way this is being framed by Republicans, which is this is all partisan, this is all a, a manipulation of the system, creates an appetite for Donald Trump. In other words, if it's all rigged, we want the best rigor in the game on our side. Well, if, if that's the case, then I think the polling continues to show us they can nominate him, but he may be set up to lose again. Uh, because in overall, general. in the general election, we're seeing Americans overall believe that this was justified, uh, that, that he should be prosecuted, right? Uh, and, and then, of course, he lost last time, and, and there's nothing yet that suggests uh, th that he would win a general election other than perhaps some horse race numbers this early. The one thing I think gives Democrats reason to be hopeful about those general election matchups, you asked about attributes in a president, who you want, or what characteristics you want in a president. Topping the list was truthfulness, right, Char uh, character and empathy. At the bottom of that list was someone who's articulate, energetic, and youthful, right? So if you're the Biden campaign right now, you go, oh, they want the truthful, truth-telling, you know, that's us, right? We're not the articulate, youthful and one. So that whole argument's gone away. That's why they remain hopeful yeah. that if it is Trump, they can still win this thing. And what are they saying inside the Democratic Party about their nominee? Well, what's interesting about Biden is, okay, he's at 41% approval. He's been in the low 40s for a while. To Ed's point, he does better in approval with folks who want a president that is calm, predictable, right, and, and steady. And those are all things that if you go back to 2020, were selling points for him. Yeah. All right. But now the question is going to be, does that necessarily meet the moment? And there are concerns among Democrats about whether he should run again. And you get four in 10 Democrats in this survey saying that they don't think that he should. And their concern is about his second term. Is this just a repeat, Amy, of 2020? It sure feels that way, I mean, doesn't it? Structurally, it, it structurally well feels that we are going to be fighting and talking about the same types of voters, right? These voters who may not be in love with Joe Biden, but feel as it, the job that he's doing, but feel as if they have little choice but to vote for him because they don't think the alternative is acceptable. In 2016, or maybe it's a little bit like 2016, are we going to see that repeat where you have a significant number of people that say, I dislike both candidates, but at the end of the day, I'm going to have to go with this person. Um, so you have a whole bunch of people who are even more dispirited about their choice than were in 2020, where people were a little bit more optimistic, at least, about who they were choosing to vote for. But this thing about Biden that has always been the case is even in 2020, the significant number of people who voted for him said, I only voted for him because he wasn't Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So there's never been this cult of personality around Joe Biden like we saw around Obama, like we obviously see around Donald Trump. So rallying support for Biden has always been about the other rather than about Biden. As you cover the White House, um, obviously Joe Biden's not talking about this and they won't say anything uh, about it. But one thing that struck me is he had developed some kind of relationship with the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, doing, through the debt ceiling negotiations. But now Kevin McCarthy is, is coming out at the sort of the furthest edge of response and saying mm -hmm. this is being led by the president, about, of which there's no evidence. How, what does that mean for lawmaking life in Washington going forward? I think the White House understands that Kevin McCarthy has a real tr problem holding his own caucus together. And there are Freedom Caucus, arch-conservative members who needed to hear the speaker say those things mm -hmm. 
in the wake of the debt ceiling agreement. Remember, the House was sent home early this past week because they couldn't move some very simple things through amid the conservative opposition to the debt limit deal. By saying what he said, he's appeasing those guys in hopes that they can all come back next week uh, and get things moving again. The president, the White House understand that, that McCarthy has to be out there talking, appeasing these people. But at the end of the day, they believe when it comes to a government shutdown threat potentially in September uh, and all the other things they'll have to do, they'll find a way to do it because ultimately chaos just doesn't favor Congress uh, as it's currently right. constructed. So they're not taking it personal, just no, business. Not, right. not this president. <laughs> Amy, Ed, and Anthony, thank you so much. CBS News will have special coverage during the day, and the CBS Evening News will originate from Miami on Tuesday as former President Trump makes his first court appearance there. That's scheduled for 3 p.m. Thank you for watching today. Margaret will be back next week. For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were CBS News Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa, Senior Investigative Correspondent Catherine Herridge, CBS News Legal Analyst Ricky Kleeman, Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, 2024 Republican Presidential Hopeful and Governor of North Dakota Doug Burgum, Cook Political Report's Amy Walter, and our Senior White House and Political Correspondent Ed O'Keefe. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network at 1.30 p.m., 4 p.m., 10 p.m. on Sundays. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart here. Unbelievably exciting news. My new podcast, The Weekly Show. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, economics, ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.